In 2015, at the United Nations General Assembly, International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach announced the creation of the Refugee Olympic Team. That was like a, a dream, you know, turning a dream to reality, really. As a refugee, we, we lost everything. And the only thing that keeps us going is our dreams. This is Asif Sultani. In 2018, Asif received a karate scholarship from the IOC, and he doesn't see it as a scholarship solely for himself. It's just a, a massive responsibility because I'm not representing myself, I'm not representing just one country, I'm representing millions of people that has been displaced all over the world. Now meet Fareed Walazadeh, a lightweight boxer also rewarded with an IOC scholarship in 2018. There's a really hard work and we really suffer a lot, but this is our dream. Of course, without sacrifice, you cannot achieve no dream. Asif and Farid know all about sacrifice. After fleeing their native Afghanistan, they have walked alone across freezing mountain ranges, been thrown from cars while escaping people smugglers, locked up for no reason, relentless beatings, bullying and trauma. Land, sea and sky have all been places of immense danger for these two men. I'm Owen Blackhurst, and for Eurosport, this is Raw. Stories of bravery, determination and talent. In 1979, with a Soviet invasion on the horizon, people began to flee Afghanistan. The number of Afghan refugees fluctuated. But in the late 1980s, some 6 million had sought refuge in another country. Today, around 80 million people are displaced as a result of conflict or persecution. And Afghans represent the second highest proportion of registered refugees in the world. Asif Sultani was born in Afghanistan in 1995. When he was seven, him and his family were forced to flee. It was a treacherous journey. From Afghanistan to Iran, I remember that we were stopped by the thieves and they robbed us from the only belonging that we had with us while they were pointing um, gun at us. And then I remember that they were um, yelling at my, at my dad, but I was crying as loud as I could and because I was so scared and I was a kid. You know, I couldn't understand at that age that what was going on and I was crying. And because of me crying so much, my, my dad was in so much trouble, they would keep hitting him. When they arrived in Iran, things got much worse. We were not only um, persecuted for, um, for being an Afghan, but we also were persecuted for being an undocumented asylum seeker. So I find myself uh, different to other kids because uh, I remember that people used to punch me, kick me and spit on me and humiliated me, like, you know, making me, begging them for mercy. And, and I was questioning myself and my father, you know, why am I different? Um, why they, they are above me? Why can't I be like everyone else? Why can't I go to school? 
And my dad tried to explain to me that, you know, we are asylum seeker and we don't have the same right as everyone else. I just keep blaming my dad for that. Yeah, I'm really regret that, but the reality is I did. And I said to him that, like, everything is your fault because I don't have the same opportunity as other people. But unfortunately, um, when you're on that age, yeah, you know, no matter how much your parents tell you, you're always going to backfire at them and say, you know, I know better. This mistreatment of refugees is a deep societal problem that intensifies globally year on year. It's brought into especially sharp focus when you consider that half of the world's refugees are children. Farid is now based in Portugal and Asif in Australia. We spoke to them together on a video call. It was a privilege. And although they'd never met before, the similarities in their stories mean there was an instant connection. Farid was born in Afghanistan in 1997. His father died when he was one, and when his pregnant mother was forced to flee to Pakistan, Farid was left behind with a friend's family. His adoptive mother died in 2005, so his adoptive father had to pay people smugglers to get him out of the country. Money might have changed hands, but Farid actually ended up walking across the Afghan mountains towards Pakistan. For a long time, he was alone. Not like a calm walking, no? Stressful walking. It's running, hiding. Again, someone coming. Oh, police is coming. Then we are hiding again and running. Food, water. You, you have problem of that. Another thieves that come in the way. Because they're cutting the way of the refugees and they're taking their money, they're raping, killing. They can do everything they want because they're out of rules. The only problem was like, I was thinking that how to run, how to survive this day, and let's think the next day. Long time that we ran from these borders and everything. So we had a group and first uh, we went from Afghanistan to a city called Jalalabad. And then from there to Peshawar, uh, we went to... Imagine that we would go most of places like where is not very security, you know, not police security or stuff. We would go with kind of some Toyota car. Uh, this car is normally for 10 people, imagine. And you would enter like uh, 15 people or 25, 30. We were like sitting like, you know, joined together. And when you would go out of the car, it's like... All of the body was, like, stuck, you know. Everything about the journey was treacherous. And after falling off the back of a truck halfway across Pakistan, after living a life of hiding, after seeing people from his group lose their lives in horrific circumstances, Farid arrived at the Iran-Turkey border. He didn't have any money to pay the smugglers, so they gave him a backpack to carry across the border. He suggested me that... uh, I can have two kilos of some sugar in my pocket. And then when you arrive, you give to the right person. I said, okay. And I really believe that it's sugar because it was white inside the plastic and tapped and tapped. Farid was just nine years old, innocent and searching for safety. 
But inside the rucksack was not a bag of sugar, and he was severely punished. On release, Farid was transferred to what was known as an education centre. As the only Afghan at the centre, Farid was bullied to the point where he could barely say his own name. After turning 16 in Iran, Asif was sent back to Afghanistan. Asif is Hazara, an ethnic group that have been persecuted for centuries. And, alongside feeling isolated, he was scared of how his ethnicity could affect his day-to-day life. Now people looking at me differently in my own country say, because as Hazara, we, we look a little bit different to non-Hazaras. And we have been persecuted for so many years by different groups, like by, you know, by Daesh, by the Taliban, by the ISIS. So they kidnap us and kill us, and, and this is a common thing. And, and coming in Afghanistan was like, you know, looking people, um, soldiers walking on the street with large guns. It was just terrifying. It was just uh, like a movie is going, you know, a hundred years back. Asif was terrified and completely alone. But after speaking to his dad on the phone from a hotel room, a smuggler was organised to take him to Dubai. And then from Dubai to Indonesia on a cramped boat alongside a hundred other people. When he arrived in Indonesia, there was an opportunity to get another boat to Christmas Island, a tiny island in the Indian Ocean that sits 220 miles away from Indonesia and around 900 from Australia. It is home to an immigrant detention centre built by the Australian government. The boat was overcrowded with many people, with children and families. And uh, I remember as soon as I got into the boat, I started vomiting because of the intense smell of the fume that was there. I just uh, passed out straight away. And, and most of the people were the same. And I woke up like the next morning and I was like still, I was dizzy and looking around, where am I at? Am I still alive? So halfway through the journey, our boat stopped working and therefore everyone started panicking. So many adults, they had like two, three life jackets while a lot of kids, female, like they didn't have any. And in that situation, I choose actually to not put a life jacket. And I said, you know, I tried and if it's going to be the end of my life, that's it. Because I look at the kids and they had no idea what was going on. Some of them were smiling and running here and there. I just thought about them and I completely forget about myself. Fortunately, a mechanic on board was able to fix it and Asif arrived at Christmas Island to be processed. Asif and Farid's stories run on a slightly different timeline, but the parallels are brutally obvious. In search of peace, they have travelled in two completely different directions but face the same things. War persecution, violence. By 2012, when Asif reached the Australian outpost, Farid had been living in Turkey for five years. As a reaction to the bullying he'd faced, he started to practice Kung Fu and Taekwondo. In an education centre, there is a kids that they steal, they do bad things, so they are there. And I had to fight with them every day. And since the beginning, I was never like, a kid that who can accept someone bully. You know, you beat me, I will beat you. There was a, a technique of the surviving. 
then I, I start to learn from one friend that who was uh, from Kuwaita, Pakistan. He was from my ethnic too. And he had a really good Kung Fu skill and once I saw him, he beat some guys and really easy. Yeah, and I, I said, you have to teach me. And he was like, why you want to learn? I said, I want to beat guys like this. I'm each time fighting and they're bleeding my nose. And from there I started to learn some Kung Fu and then I also was inspired by Jackie Chan because he was running away and jumping and quick uh, hitting people. And so I went to Taekwondo and in Taekwondo club I start my life. Training was his sanctuary and the confidence he'd lost slowly started to return. But it wasn't easy for a boy with no fixed status, no family and no documents. He trained hard, started to compete locally and began to win fights with a concentrated aggression. Then he won a fight against the son of a local gym owner and rather than accept defeat, the fighter's family beat him so badly he ended up in a coma. I just uh, went to the fight and in the taekwondo I, I did a flying kick, you know. And when I kick him, he's here in the jaw and he totally fell down. Then I come out and the father crossed with the car and beat with me, broke his hands, you know. It's still showing. You see, there's two bones. And yeah, I was like for some time in coma, but now I'm okay and I come back. Not taekwondo, but in boxing. Not long after this, Farid's life finally took a positive turn. The UN Refugee Agency informed him that two countries were able to offer him refugee status, the USA and Portugal. His frames of reference for the two nations were very, very different. He asked me this, uh, do you play football? I said, sometimes, you know. I said, do you know Cristiano Ronaldo? I said, yeah, he's a great player. I said, that's the country of this guy. Mm. And I said, okay, then I'm going to go there. And he asked me, why not America? I was a kid, you know, in that time. And he said, man, I, I see in Afghanistan only tank of America, armies of America. I don't want to go there. I just want to go to Portugal because I never seen any army. I see just great player football. Farid hadn't been the only one learning martial arts. Since he was a kid, Assi's father had warned his son of the dangers of the life of an asylum seeker. And so he'd introduced him to karate and taekwondo. Asi fell in love with the sports. As a child, he trained at a dojo in Iran. That was until they banned him because of his ethnicity. The detention centre on Christmas Island had a gym. And after being denied entry for so many years, Asif was hell-bent on making the most of it. He remembers seeing someone on the news do 2,000 sit-ups without stopping. So he decided that's what he was going to do. I talked to a few people, they say, you're crazy that, that, you know, you don't have that ability. I said, oh, okay, I'm going to do it. But I talked to the trainer. We had a trainer over there for the gym. They were like, go for it. They're just so, you know, supporting and encouraging. I said, you know, that goal for myself and I trained really, really hard and I focused for three months. And then when the time comes, I did. 2,300 sit-ups and it took me like one hour and 20 minutes without stopping. I just didn't want to stop, you know, in 2000 because I just wanted to prove that, you know, as a refugee, or like I have the same ability as everyone else in the world. 
Asif moved to a detention centre on the Australian mainland. It was here that his training became serious. Two officers supported him, got him up in the early hours, held up pads for him, pushed him hard, worked on his fitness. He had never had support like it. And in 2014, after 11 long years as an asylum seeker, Asif was granted refugee status. He was 18, and the first thing he did was go to school, something he hadn't been able to do since he was seven. His new status also meant that he could go back to the dojo. He trained there every day before and after school, getting up at 5am, running 7k there, then running 7k back home. When I arrived in Australia, I started um, doing karate with another Afghan guy. I met him in a tournament and we became friends. And then he introduced me to his instructor, who was an Australian guy and a very nice guy, for example. I, I've got so much respect for him. He, he looked after me, you know, and tried to help me in any way he could. Karate training with his friend Ali and their coach quickly turned into competition. Ali and I went to a, a World Cup championship in Australia that happens every three years. So Ali was a lot older than me. He said, this is going to be my last fight and after that I'm going to retire. And obviously everyone wants to win his last, you know, his last fight and retire. So we both went to that World Cup championship and both of us lost. As simple as that. And, and Ali was really disappointed that he just cried. He made me to promise him that I will come in three years and represent um, us again. Asif spent the next two years pushing his body to the limits. He ended up ranked number one in New South Wales. In 2017, he entered that tournament again. He won it. It, it was a joyful thing to share with my Ali and with my instructor and to show that, you know, no matter, regardless of our background, ethnicity and refugee status, that we have that ability to be equal with everyone else. Farid was settling into life in Portugal, reading children's books and newspapers all day to learn the language. And, despite the injuries, the coma and the doctors who told him not to fight again, he'd got himself back in the gym at a club in Lisbon and focused on boxing. Like Asif, he found a place he felt safe. And like Asif, Farid was fired up. Age 15, he told his caseworker this. I don't intend to be a champion. I know I will. At the beginning, he was only using one hand. Can you believe that I trained like walking in front and back in boxing? For three months, just punching left. And when I went to the tournament, five fight just with one punch. Yeah, because I was just training this for three or four months, like left and left. And the guy was trying to run or putting another punch. And I was like, bam, in the left. Repeating again. And when I went first five or six fight of the regimental area, I win all by knockout with left hand. Then I, I learned after some time right hand that become more dangerous and until national championship I, I win all the fight by knockout. True to his word, and within five months, Farid became champion of a national boxing tournament. But despite his struggle, his commitment and his victory, the organisers took his medal away. And why? Because he was a refugee. 
I was sad, disappointed, you know, when I come to a refugee center back in Portugal. I just cried the whole night and I didn't sleep the night. Like, it was very hard for me to accept this because I I wanted to show to some of my friends in Turkey that they are in refugee center or that I became national champion, but I couldn't show them because how they would believe, you know? I'm saying I'm national champion with a face totally like a red eyes, and but I don't have medal. They would ask me, where is the medal? And I was sad, disappointed, and I was thinking that I'm not going to do this sport. Eventually, Farid did receive his medal, but he wasn't allowed to enter the same competition the following year. Refugees suffer crippling injustice every day. So Farid focused his mind onto bigger things. I said, okay, you know, I keep the medal and I just put somewhere. And I said, this is not enough for me. I'm going to get greater than this. It was hard, but uh, my dream became bigger. I, I started to bring dream about Olympic, about the uh, about, uh, world championship, European championship, because... I I know that I can and I'm really a hard worker and, and then uh, people were saying always that for it, they didn't even give you a national championship medal so why you are dreaming that big stop living in a dream and I didn't give up In 2016 at the opening ceremony for the Rio Olympics, President Thomas Bach spoke about his hopes for the first refugee team. With the greatest respect, we welcome the refugee Olympic team. You are sending a message of hope to all the many millions of refugees around the globe. In this Olympic world, we do not just tolerate diversity. In this Olympic world, we welcome you as an enrichment to our unity in diversity. There were 10 athletes in the refugee team at Rio. And the creation of this programme has given Farid and Asif the chance to aim for the stars. And in 2018, the IOC got in touch with Asif and offered him a scholarship. That was like a, a dream, you know, turning a dream to reality, really. As a refugee, we, we lost everything. And the only thing that keep us going is our hope and dreams. I always wanted to tell people my story of survival and resilience in order to empower and inspire them. So when I heard that um, I was accepted for the scholarship, I cried. You know, I, I cried really, really loud because um, for me, being a refugee scholarship holder, it, it's just a, a massive responsibility because therefore I'm not representing myself. I'm not representing just one country. I'm representing millions of people that has been displaced all over the world. So, so therefore, this is a massive responsibility on my shoulder that I cannot take it easy. Back in 2017... While combining training with working at a hotel, something incredible happened to Farid. After 20 long years, he was reunited with his mother. My family was founded by Red Cruz 
to to bring in Portugal and I really fight so much for this to bring my family because I was 18 years old when you're 18 years old you cannot bring no family only it was like the most amazing feeling ever that a human could feel in my case and I don't have no other better things that I can say that is greater than that I can feel you man there's no no word that can describe you know a feeling that um, uh, in my opinion that a son have for their mothers especially in our culture A year later, while studying to be an architect, Farid was also offered a scholarship from the IOC. This is a big, uh, heavy burden, you know, heavy weight to carry because you need to be careful about your attitude, about your... Hard work, eh? Hey? <laughs> That's work, it. You know, to be an example for the people who are like you. And, you know, boxing, boxing is like very hard sport because... Everybody liked to see the boxing, like uh, in the ring, they, everyone looks like a goddess, you know. Great, but behind these great people, there's a really hard work and we really suffer a lot. But uh, this is our dream. Of course, without sacrifice, you cannot achieve no dream. And when I come into my bed, like 10 or 11, I'm like totally like a, a person who crashed the bike car, you know, that all part of the body is full of pain and I'm putting myself in a bed and next day I wake up and repeat. These two young men, who endured things unimaginable to most of us, had set their eyes on the ultimate sporting prize. The games aren't held on Mount Olympus anymore, but even if they were, scaling its near 10,000 feet peak would be insignificant compared to the journey of two boys from Afghanistan. We are not representing ourselves. We are representing everyone around the world and we are there to unite people together through sports and represent the power of human compassion. That's what we are fighting for, for human rights, for freedom, for peace and for, to uniting everyone together. Since recording this episode, Asif and Farid have both found out they've not been selected for Tokyo. But... Compared to everything that these two extraordinary people have faced, this is a small bump in the road. It was never about medals or podiums or glory, but instead humanity, unity and peace. Raw. Stories of Bravery, Determination and Talent is an original Eurosport series produced by Mundale Studio. The narrator and story editor is me, Owen Blackhurst. The writer and producer is James Bird. And the executive producers are Tayo Papula and Seb White. The assistant producer is Chris Byfield. Archive provided by the IOC. For Eurosport, the commissioning editor is Mark Aishen and the executive producer is Ian Brackley. Original music composed by Harry Harris.